And because we got like a taste of that flexibility, we kind of demand it now, right? Yeah. Like, even though there are a lot of articles about how the energy around the Great Resignation is cooling off as people face the things you were talking about, inflation and economic uncertainty, a report from LinkedIn showed that flexibility remains one of the top career priorities. Yeah. And that's separate from compensation and work-life balance. Those things used to be kind of assumed to be one and the same. There was this idea that if I got paid more and had more time off, then I could create flexibility as a side effect. And I think the pandemic and the great resignation taught us like, nah, there's levels to this. You can have great compensation, great like work-life balance and flexibility. And people are like, well, yeah, give me all of it. Give me flexibility. Welcome to the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Julian. And today we're talking about the Great Resignation, or we're looking back on the Great Resignation, dot, 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 (laughs) one year later. Yeah, I think this is going to be interesting because... Unlike a few other pandemic trends, this one seems a little too early to call. (laughs) Like, at best, this episode is going to be insightful, but at worst, this episode is going to be kind of inconclusive. Like, (laughs) we just... Which are my favorite types of (laughs) conversations. Yeah. So I guess we should back the truck up and say, you know, what it is. For those who are unfamiliar with the term, the great resignation, not to be confused with the great recession. America loves its greats. But the great resignation refers to a trend where Americans quit their jobs in record numbers starting last year in 2021. Mm -hmm. And the reasons that people left their jobs kind of varied. Some left because of you know, flat wages, others from limited career opportunities or hostile work environments, lack of benefits and flexible remote work policies, you name it. Like, there's a number of reasons that people left, but it's really been the closest thing that we've seen to what other countries might call like a general strike. It's almost like everybody decided to be fed up at the same time and started leaving, which is just, it's never happened before, which it's interesting to look back a year later. Do you kind of remember when you realized that something was changing that, you know, the times before the great resignation? Yeah. So for me, it happened long before the pandemic. I would say in the late 2000s, early 2010s, even, especially when I started hearing and, and learning a little bit more about the fire movement and watching it grow online, I knew then that there was a direct tie-in to work and the frustration that people were feeling to the point where they were willing to explore spending, saving, and living well below their means as a way to get out of these kinds of environments. It was like an act of protest. And I remember one of my very first thoughts was less about like, oh, this is intriguing, but more so what were the implications of the growth and adoption of the FIRE movement with respect to the war for talent? Because Mm -hmm. if the best and brightest who more often than not tend to be the highest uh, compensated employees are rapidly trying to find ways to exit the workforce. What implication does that have on employees' uh, ability or employers' ability to attract or retain those kinds of employees? And right. you would see those kinds of things. You would see the people who were doing things and getting really creative in terms of negotiating compensation. If you worked for a global company, we knew that there were people, and I was even considering it, 
uh, taking secondments, which is like mm-hmm. opportunities to go work abroad and, you know, gain a unique sort of perspective on the company. But they were also very lucrative. And, you know, it was, it was like almost like studying abroad a little bit, but you would just get like different levels of compensation and access. Right. Uh, you started to see the very beginnings of people wanting to work remotely and people kind of being like okay with that, even though like now it's normal. But right. back then, like, you know, over a decade in some cases, two decades ago, it was like, uh, I don't know about that, right? Because we were very much an office world. And I, and, and I also remember as you started to see like this growth uh, in tech companies and like this huge boom, like that coming with like a new level of kind of freedom that employees were having. And quite honestly, just a lot more people like just managing their careers differently. And so all of that to say, I think the combination of people kind of like pushing for more freedom, more flexibility, basically pushing back against the old way of doing things that employees, uh, employers were demanding uh, was to me kind of the beginnings of a lot of the frustration that we were seeing when the pandemic hit. I think the downside to that is that these are the kinds of things that really only like the elite, like the really top employees were kind of taking advantage of. Exactly. Everyone else was kind of left behind with the old way of doing things. Yes. And it it, it kind of exacerbated the issue a little bit because it gave employers a reason to kind of keep things the way that they are and mm-hmm. kind of roll the dice and say, well, if you guys want to do that stuff, that's fine. But the rest of us, right? We kind of like it here in the office. We like the way that things are. And so, yeah, it's been really, really interesting. And, um, you know, it took the pandemic to kind of bring all of these issues to a head where people yeah. wanted the same kinds of freedoms that they knew were possible, but employers were kind of unwilling to um, to kind of yield a little bit. Yeah, that I think the the pandemic was kind of the, the, the turning point for me. Because like you, we've always been pretty good at kind of spotting cultural trends. And yeah. we knew that there were all these subgroups who were opting out of the normal way of doing things from the fire community to the tiny house movement to van lifers. We saw all of this happening on the internet, but it wasn't until the pandemic, because I remember those early days of quarantine where everything was just so dangerous and childcare stopped and work moved to the house and the the essential workers were exhausted. And I just remember thinking with everything that was on our plate, like how are working parents supposed to do this? We were in a fortunate situation where our money was solid and we could control our schedule, but we still had deadlines for the book and aging parents and a whole kid that, you know, we had to take care of. And we were really unequipped to be at home full time. And I was like, man, if I had a job, I I just don't know how I would do this. Yeah. Yeah. So to your point today, we just kind of want to look at what's happened over the last year and what we can make of it, (laughs) if anything, and just kind of determine like, do we think this is going to continue into the next couple of years? Yeah. Please make a guess. Yeah. Yeah. So let's start with some of the demographics about who left, Uh, who are these people? Uh, And I think we've all heard the stats about women and how they were disproportionately affected by the pandemic, economically speaking. Again, to your point, if you are the primary leader of your household and your responsibility is to sort of, gosh, like cook, clean, do all of these things at home, right? Uh, In addition to now working at home, like that's literally impossible. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so it makes a lot of sense that uh, women were sort of leading the way and saying, you know what, I, I cannot do both. 
right. I'm a human being, yeah. right? Like there's only so much uh, anyone can do. Uh, and so I'm going to make the decision uh, to focus on the thing that really matters, which is to just like be home and take care of my, my kids. And then, you know, hopefully my partner, if you're even able to do that, right? Like, gosh, I can't even imagine. Like I said, if you were a single parent, like what you could do uh, or what was even possible for you. So anyway, we know that women were kind of leading the way. And so that that part, we can check that box. But one of the more surprising insights that uh, we uncovered came from a report uh, from Goldman Sachs last fall. Uh, and it basically stated that half of the people who left were over the age of 55. And within that, women particularly uh, were uh, sort of leading the way in terms of, of leaving. And those who were in public facing positions were far more likely, uh, and especially those that were between the ages of 65 and 74, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of makes sense, right? If you had the ability to quit, you'd have basically already had enough to kind of walk away. Great. You could do that. But kind of worked on the other side too. Like people who just sort of figured that, you know what, I don't have enough, but it's not worth it. Sort of. Well, they might've had enough because of the stock market last year. Like they could have just been like, you know what? Like (laughs) now's the time. The the portfolio has gone up enough, but yeah, it was super surprising that more than half of the people that left were over the age of 55. I had not considered that demographic when I thought about the great resignation. No, I hadn't either because again, it was sort of marketed as, like, oh, here, these millennials go yeah. again, you know, but actually the data suggests it wasn't just us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, our older friends, brothers and sisters as well. And so when people think about uh, the labor shortages that we've seen in, let's say, retail or food service, we often default to that stereotype, right, of the spoiled 20-year-old, which is technically like a Gen Z or, or you know, I, I'm so sensitive to it because as a millennial, I remember being bashed. So I don't want to be a Gen Z basher. But again, I'm, I'm very much familiar with that. And I remember how folks were treated. But employees were basically depending on boomers who were well known for their desire and willingness to work past the traditional retirement age. And some of that was because of financial hardship, meaning they couldn't quit. But another was just like cultural and generational because work was such a defining part of their identity. And so even when you think about our book and we think about the early pandemic years really kind of taking a toll on them as older workers who simply didn't think it was worth it to like try to withstand another cycle. They were just like, you know what, what to your point, whether I have enough or I don't, I, I, I'm done. You know what I mean? I've done my part. I am where I am and I'm just going to make the boat the most of sort of the rest of what life has to offer me. And so it's been really interesting to kind of see uh, a little bit behind the curtain of like, who left and some of the motivations behind why they decided to do it. Yeah, I don't think that economic analysts, you know, the smart people we pay to tell us what's happening, I don't think they ever looked at the risk of older workers making a mass exit as an economic threat. To your point, boomers have always worked past the normal working age out of some, in some cases, financial hardship and other cases, just a desire to be doing something. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, older workers were kind of plugging this labor hole (laughs) and that sounds crazy, but like they were, they were fulfilling a gap in our labor market. And now that they've left it's created this domino effect for other issues So obviously employers are going to have to pay higher wages to attract new workers to replace these older workers. And as, you know, companies do, that could lead to higher prices on the consumer end, even though they don't have to raise the prices in order to raise wages. (laughs) 
But we've also talked about the strain on Social Security before and how it's projected to be insolvent and unable to pay full benefits in 2035. Early estimates suggested that the recession in 2021 already moved this up like a year yeah. to 2034, but this just exacerbates it, right? If you have fewer people that are working but also are eligible for Social Security, they're drawing down on an already strained fund. Yeah. So then when you add in all the medical concerns, the wonky housing market and everything else, it just paints a different picture than the one that we've been talking about, which has largely been focused on worker empowerment, flexible schedules, pay increases, working from home. And it's like, well, there's this other side of the equation too, where it's like, how are we going to care for this aging population that no longer has an employer subsidizing some of their basic needs? Yeah. I mean, even when I think about some of the older family members that we have, as much as I'd like to say that there's no way that they could be enticed to go back to work, like, I think many of them would 100% be willing. Oh, yeah. and, Especially and, now. And, of course, right now. That. And the threat of a recession or the threat. I mean, I feel like we're I know. very The recession that doesn't identify this, as a right, recession. It, exactly. <laughs> this, whatever this downturn is, it's just a little more acceptable <laughs> softening. word. Um, but I, I think for sure, older workers, if our family members and just the people that we know in our circle are any indication, without question, many of them could be enticed to go back to work. You know, again, and, I, and and we've kind of seen that before, right? We've seen uh, in our own experiences what companies might be willing to do when they know that there's a significant group of people that they kind of want to push out. But for whatever reason, in most cases, it's just kind of like a desire for some stability. They may employ like a temporary solution. Well, let's keep them. Let's retrain. Let's retool. Sort of use them to kind of get over a hump. And then they sort of launch the thing that sort of justifies a reason for them to leave. But even that, I mean, if it's enough to help sort of older workers kind of buy some time for three to five years, I mm-hmm. think there are a lot of people that would be willing to do that because the reality is a lot of people are cash strapped out there mm-hmm. um, for a wide variety of reasons. And so whether it's an opportunity to earn money, save money, or just kind of slow the burn rate of the money exactly. that they already have, I think a lot of people for sure would be willing to do that. I mean, you've got you know, I think two big things, the promise of just health care, right? Like just make these bills go away yeah. uh, because I did not anticipate these things to be nearly as expensive as they are, which again, is practically impossible to predict as you're preparing for the future. That's what you're ultimately asking people to do. And then the second part, and we've spoken about this a lot, but, you know, the sandwich generation, you've got a lot of people who are financially supporting adult children. So you're a boomer, mm-hmm. you have a, a child who went to college. They came out during an economic downturn. Their careers never really quite took off because of that. Mm -hmm. Student loan debt crisis sort of compounded on top of that. And then on top of that, you've got their parents, like their older parents that they might also be financially supporting. I just think all of those reasons combined are enough for people to say, you know what? Yes, I'm technically old enough to retire. Or maybe I did retire, but I'd be willing to go back for three to five years because I think it would Correct. help sort of fill the gap and um, give me a sense of stability. Yeah. Okay. So that's one kind of news line is just around like what's going to happen with older workers. Like I said at the beginning, inconclusive. Yep. Don't know. <laughs> but the second one that we've seen recently is that uh, the great resignation is kind of losing steam. It's becoming the great remorse or like people are kind of having a hard time finding new work now that tech experienced all their layoffs, which, you know, just kind of cascaded. 
And I just want to call out that although the number of people quitting is down from, you know, the peak of 2021, it still remains at the highest level since the 1970s, which is pretty remarkable given everything that's going on. And across the board, no matter what kind of relationship you have with your employer prior to 2020, whether you were white collar or an essential worker, whatever it is, the uncertainty and the chaos of the last few years has impacted your relationship with work, like across the board. Survey after survey reveals this. It's not just Kirsten with her opinion. Survey after survey says that the collective American psychology towards work changed after 2020. It's like we collectively experienced this psychological shock. And in my mind, the last time that we- The great reevaluation. The great (laughs) reevaluation. But for real, the last time we experienced something like this was like 9-11 and the days and the policies that followed. We all, you know, obviously those in New York experienced it differently, but we all kind of felt the reverberations after 9-11. We can't even fly the same way. Like everything was different. And so I, I think if you look back on the timeline of this, I think initially employees really made headway and and tried to fight to make our jobs better. If you remember last year, Striketober, which is when we saw the beginnings of blue-collar workers try to unionize. And we even saw some big wins from huge companies like Starbucks and Amazon that would never consider unionizing and still (laughs) fight against it. On the flip side, we saw like an increase in remote work and even hybrid formats, which I'd argue is here to stay with the exception of, you know, some of these tech companies that are bringing people back. And that trend led to overemployed, this idea of working multiple remote jobs at the same time. So I just feel like there has been some shifts, even among the young folks who may not be in a position to completely walk away. They've adopted trends that are, again, the reverberations like quiet quitting <laughs> that is basically the agreement that I'm just going to do what I'm paid to do versus like, yeah, if I'm going to resign. If I have to be here, then this is what it's going to look like. Exactly. This is what it's going to be. Exactly. But very similar to when we first discovered the tiny house movement and the fire community, these seem to be kind of individualistic or like company wins. There's no organizing and demanding new overall labor laws that would, yeah. that would lock these this progress into into legislation. There's no law being touted around protections for family leave or paid time off or updated wage minimums. Like I think the cynics would argue that we've been here before, where you know people start feeling themselves, they start pushing for change, and progress is made. But if you don't lock that thing in at the legislative level, then it eventually falls back into you know the normal, the the other way. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. What do you think? Like, do you think this is progress without legislation? You know, I don't know that I hold legislation as like the, the final level of the thing that kind of makes things official. Um, again, I'm paying attention to the balance of power between employees and employers and employees, I think, have more power and more leverage than they ever have, at least like in recent times, like we're negotiating salary. Uh, we're getting sign-on bonuses, flexible schedules, all the things that we spoke about. I think even sort of the non-kind of monetary issues, I think people are just far more vocal about their needs and the things that are important to them, which does have an impact on the types of conditions and benefits uh, and offerings that are offered to them. Because again, companies want to compete. 
um, and, and be able to get the best talent because they know that that has an impact on their bottom line. And I think the combination of those things, plus people embracing new, more independent ways of earning income without the, a middleman like side hustles and online businesses, I think all of those things kind of couple with, you know, shifting social norms around wellness and parenting and equality. Uh, one of the things that are kind of like really contributing to the change uh, that that we are or the progress that we've experienced. And so I think even without unions or legislative sort of influence, there are levers that are being pulled and that can be pulled that yeah. can sort of le- help us lead uh, progress or make progress on behalf of workers. And I, and I know for sure, like even when we look at young people, I know we spent a lot of time talking about boomers, but young folks, you know, if you look at the midterm elections, like they have, they've showed up in Joe's. They're voicing their concerns. They're the They're, new swing voter. Yeah. It's the, the no longer swing a swing voter. state. It's like a swing demographic. Yeah, <laughs> it's now, like, surprise. <laughs> now I will say like economic issues are not top of mind for them, like with right. the exception of like the student loan debt crisis, but they're definitely paying attention to those things. Yeah. They're mindful of it because they know what their parents and their sort of older siblings, if you will, kind of went through. And so from that standpoint, I feel like, I wouldn't say that we've been here before, but I do think we're building on top of where we've been, right? There's a there's there's been like it feels like to your point, like the seventies was the seventies was probably a good period to compare where we are right now, where there's just like a general shift in the public consciousness about some mm-hmm. of these issues. And that typically is what leads to legislative change. But yes. but again, even if we have legislative change, like there's still like a period of time for that to sort of kind of kick yeah. in. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So there are a couple of other positive trends that have come from the great reshuffling <laughs> or the big quit. It's about the fifth version. <laughs> <I know. laughs> like, the great trying to keep the audience on their toes, whatever you want to call it. There have been a couple of positive trends. And I think one of the bigger ones that we've covered on several episodes is this investment in upskilling yeah. or reskilling. And it's coming both from venture capitalists and institutional investors and from employers. They know they have to prepare employees for the workplaces and jobs of the futures. And this little shock to the system kind of put a sense of urgency under them to start right now. So we've seen a lot of career pivots from people who used to be in what I like to refer to as lifelong careers, Mm -hmm. careers that reward tenure and longevity, people like teachers and military officers, right? They've started to get these micro-credentials in coding or Salesforce administration, or now they're experimenting as full-time freelancers, or they just have viable side hustles. I just think that seeing people get creative about their income streams is really pushing the limits of what it means to be an entrepreneur. And that is a positive trend. Because it used to be that you weren't an entrepreneur unless you owned a business and that business needed to have employees and create jobs. But now it's seen as more of like a spectrum and people are creating new terms to signal kind of where they are on that spectrum, whether they're a solopreneur, which is a company of one or a dualpreneur, which means they're still full-time employed or a side hustler. These are all just versions of entrepreneurship. And that's exciting for a country where wealth is generated from some type of ownership that more people are putting a stake in business ownership. Yeah. And I think it begs the question, like, is, is the rise of people kind of establishing income sources independent of employers, right? Like yeah. outside of traditional employment, is that in and of itself a reason to be optimistic? And 
And, you know, I say yes, yes and no, right? On, on one hand, <laughs> when you deep. earn, well, you, listen, we said from the top Probably. that this was going to be inconclusive. <laughs> but, you know, like on, on one hand, when you earn money outside of a job, like there's less dependency on employees for income, like period. Like you don't, you're not worried about that. And so as a result, like the way that you evaluate jobs uh, is going to be different, right? You have multiple sources of income. And so if you control uh several or more of those sources, like the way that you evaluate a job opportunity is going to be different. Now, on the other hand, like healthcare is still super expensive and like most side hustles and entrepreneurs can't afford it. And so there's still a lot of value in jobs because that is one of the, you know, top benefits that many of them do provide. And even outside of that, debt levels are still at record highs, right? Credit cards, student loans, car loans, all these things. And so, yeah, it's great that people are stepping out there, you know, uh, sort of pursuing whatever you want to call it, dualpreneurship, entrepreneurship, self-employment, all of these other synonyms. Uh, But if it's not creating enough income to support yourself, like there's still a lot of value in jobs. And I think Mm -hmm. that sort of erodes a lot of the, or diminishes some of the leverage that a lot of workers have. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I think the last definitive benefit that I'll say comes from all of this is just a higher standard. You know, as a country, whether you agree with the way that we did it or not, we got a taste of what's possible. Yeah, It's possible to receive a stimulus check in your account whenever the government decides to send you one. It's possible to work from home and connect with people virtually. It's possible to get a job without ever having to step into an office. And because we got like a taste of that flexibility, we kind of demand it now, right? Like, even though there are a lot of articles about how the energy around the Great Resignation is cooling off as people face the things you were talking about, inflation and economic uncertainty, a report from LinkedIn showed that flexibility remains one of the top career priorities. And that's separate from compensation and work-life balance. Those things used to be kind of assumed to be one and the same. There was this idea that if I got paid more and had more time off, then I could create flexibility as a side effect. And I think the pandemic and the great resignation taught us like, nah, there's levels to this. You can have great compensation, great like work-life balance and flexibility. And people are like, well, yeah, give me all of it. Give me flexibility. Yeah. Well, I actually think that people are sort of kind of rejecting the idea of work-life balance. Work-life balance never kind of came to fruition anyway. Right. right? So I think this is why people are prioritizing flexibility because, yes, I experienced flexibility and I like that. Right. (laughs) Is that what you call it? Right. I was like, I tried this thing that you guys called work-life balance. And I could never quite get it. Yeah. So I prefer this. And so, no, I do not want to change. You were recently talking or working on a project, which I'm very excited to announce maybe in the next couple of weeks. And um, we were talking to a guy that we've known for a couple of years, and he was kind of reflecting on his own journey. His name is Brad, and he had always wanted to be a teacher. He did everything to become a teacher. But as he started to uh, think about having a child and started thinking about his calendar and the way that that would impact his ability to parent, he really started reevaluating his career. And so his response was to lean into Salesforce and these other programs. And he took that a step further and decided to create a program to encourage and lead other people who uh, wanted to sort of follow the same path that he did. And so he now teaches other people how to do that because, one, you can earn a really, really good living, uh, but two, it does not. It's typically remote, and you can kind of 
like have the flexibility, right? That gives you the ability to do all of those other things. And I think it's just like great example of what a lot of people are dealing with. We have uh, a similar situation. We're kind of in the same boat. We've created multiple streams of income. We essentially work from home or wherever we've decided to be. But I can't say that I would never, like I tried not to use never. I guess it's because there's so much uncertainty right now, but like it's, it's low likelihood, but <laughs> I, I don't know that I would ever consider a job because they are just so chronically inflexible. Mm-hmm. You know, and like I, I, I am very much accustomed to uh, the light that we've built. And so it would take a lot of pressure for me to consider that. But yeah, I think flexibility is what a lot of people are looking for because they just realize that like jobs just are inherently inflexible, you know, and, yeah. and it dictates, you know, like I think the combination of that, but it, it also kind of dictating or placing like such a hard cap on your earning potential. It drains your time. Like there are very real downsides to jobs, which is not like sort of like bashing them. It's just like the reality. of yeah. This is how they're designed. We've never had anything to compare it to. Correct. And now we have a lot to yeah. compare it and, to. And it sets, it sets the tone for like everything in your life. And yeah. so like if you really want to kind of change like the, your life as a whole, like a lot of that starts with like reevaluating your job or your approach to work as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Before we end, I just had this thought that I'd love to see someone do a study of people who were working from home in the, in the before times, like those native work for home positions that have always existed versus people whose position was kind of converted to a work from home position. Because there were people and even companies that have been working remote the past decade, even right. before that. Like my dad worked from home for as long as I can remember, well over 20 years. And I bet the outcomes from building a career in that way across the board have to be positive, like financially, physically, mental health wise, marriage, divorce rates. Like I bet there's a stark difference in every category, except for maybe socially. I argue that people that went to the office had more of a social life, even if it was one that they resented at times than people that worked from home. But across the board, like I'd love to see some sort of long-term study that looks at working from home at a sample size larger than like, you know, two years during a global health crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you'll get that study. We'll see. I doubt it. (laughs) Final thoughts. All right. Final thoughts on the great resignation shuffling remorse. (laughs) I mean, like I said at the beginning, this episode was going to be inconclusive. And I still have so many unanswered questions because there are so many stones that we just didn't uncover. Housing and healthcare being two of the big ones. I think... To your point, the U.S. has always experienced periods of labor unrest, but it's never been at the same time as all of these compounding global strains on the economy and our psychology. So where this lands is just like the full impacts of this have yet to be seen. But I have to say, as the optimist in the room, I feel like the potential is there. Like, that's my final thought. I feel like the potential is there. You are perpetually drunk on optimism. <laughs> I, I am. I am mixed. I'm. I'm. I look. I'm happy for workers who are standing up for themselves and pushing for change at work, but like the idea of walking away without a plan or just like out of anger just kind of seems more like a tantrum to me. Like it's yeah. very irresponsible thing to do, especially if other people are reliant on you. Agreed. At the end of the day, you need income, whether that's from like investing, cash reserves, real estate, business. 
or a job, right? Like you need income. And again, like jobs may not be perfect, but the reality is like economic fragility, like more often than not is going to kind of overshadow any of your desire to kind of push forward a plan. It's very Sun Tzu, you know, like if you don't have the resources to withstand long periods of time, you're going to lose that battle. Mm -hmm. You know, it is what it is. And so I think without a comparable, you know, great wave of entrepreneurship and like social safety nets and like wealth equality, the great resignation becomes like a blip on the radar in the same way Occupy Wall Street Mm. was supposed to be this like huge cultural and social moment that upends corporate greed. Where is it now? And I think that's unfortunately exactly. And and I think that's kind of what (laughs) may happen with uh, the Great Resignation. Well, thank you for listening to. (laughs) Not even going to address all that cynicism. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success. We about to start a new trend called the Great reviewing. Mm. So if you like what you heard, head on over to the Apple ratings and review page and leave us a five-star review. We will see y'all next week. Bye.